We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So Courtney, we've just had a wonderful conversation with Dr Murray Wesson from the UWA Law School. We have. It's all about uh, COVID and mandates and law and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really good chat about how governments have been able to do what they've been doing, which not, most of us wouldn't have ever had happen to us in our lifetime. Mm, and particularly from like a West Australian perspective as well. Mm. Um, and for a bit of background, Western Australia has been pretty hardcore uh, with all of our rules. We're pretty isolated, I guess is the right word. Um, yeah. And I don't think, I know that I've never really questioned how they can do that. Yeah. I've just accepted it. And Seems yeah. like public health trumped everything for a, has trumped everything for a while. Yeah, which I'm happy with because, you know, in public health and stuff. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, never really questioned it. And I think uh, this conversation with Murray highlights what we should know. Yeah, and I think we can have this conversation from a position of being maybe slightly less stressed out about it because we do now know as of you know, at the moment mm. that we'll be opening our borders up again in WA, so we will be able to leave. That's true. <laughs> Maybe. Right, we'll see <laughs> what happens, you know. It's not March 3rd yet, so yeah. it could cancel and then uh, <laughs> reschedule, but I highly doubt we'll it. see what happens. <laughs> yep. But um, in the meantime, have a listen to Dr Murray Wesson and we'll be back with you afterwards. <laughs> All right, well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Murray Weston to the Meaning of Health. How are you, Murray? Uh, I'm well, thank you. And you, Craig, Courtney? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good, thank you. Yeah, it's great that you could come on. And um, we have had a couple of people from the law school on before, but I think your area of law that you're going to talk about today really is directly health-related as opposed to tangentially because it's a lot about, I guess it comes down to health policy and emergency management and that sort of thing. Um. Yeah, so do, just for people listening, do you just want to give us a, a brief synopsis about, you know, your, your history and your background and, and where you are today? Sure. So um, I'm a senior lecturer in the law school at GWA. My background's in South Africa. Um, I did my initial law degree there. I spent some time in the UK, um, both studying and then working at the University of Leeds. And most recently, I've been at the University of Western Australia. Um, in terms of academic interests, um, I suppose in the first part of my career, I was more interested in South African constitutional law, um, including social and economic rights, which includes the right to health, um, which should be relevant to this podcast. Um, since moving to Australia, I've been more focused on Australian constitutional and human rights law, um, and particularly um, the implied freedom of political communication, which is a type of free speech guarantee that we have under the Australian Constitution. Yeah, so that's where you you are free to criticise political um, participants, such as ministers and members of parliament and stuff, right? Yeah, it's a very it's it's interesting, and I think we'll come back to this a few times on the podcast today. We don't have anything like a Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights under the Australian Constitution, but the High Court has found that there are some implied freedoms. And one of those is an implied freedom of political communication, which basically gives anyone in Australia 
uh, let me put that slightly differently. It prevents the Commonwealth and state and territory legislat legislatures from restricting political communication. And that's interpreted very broadly. I think this conversation today would be protected by that. Um, but yes, it also sort of central case would, um, it would protect against legislative intrusions into discussions of politicians and government policies and so on. Okay. And our, our politicians have been front and center of, of COVID and COVID policy and responses. So I think it's highly relevant, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And really constitutional law, if I was to describe it broadly, it's the area of law that um, essentially establishes the organs of the state, says what their powers are and the relationships between them and the relationship between the organs of state and the individual. And all of that is highly relevant to um, the COVID legislation, the COVID policies that we've seen. Yeah, okay. So, are there any, Craig, sorry, go ahead. Um, are there any uh, major differences between working in South Africa on this kind of area compared to Australia? Um, I think there are obviously differences in the sort of social setting. Um, so, yes. uh, as far as the pandemic's concerned, um, South Africa initially had a lockdown, quite a strict one. Um, but it wasn't able to sustain that in the way that some jurisdictions in Australia did, like Victoria. Mm. And it wasn't able to pursue the sort of elimination strategy that we had here for a time. Um, you know, higher levels of unemployment and inequality in South Africa and so on, which condition any kind of pandemic response. Um, also, it's not a federal system in the same way that Australia is. So here we've seen the states mm. being very prominent in leading the response to yeah. COVID, especially in Western Australia. You haven't seen that to the same extent in South Africa. And... Also, under the South African Constitution, there's quite a far-reaching Bill of Rights, which sort of informs government law and policy in a way that you don't see here. So I'm probably not as in touch with South African developments, at least as much as I used to be. Um, but there, there are some, I think, key differences in the way in which um, the government governments have responded and the sort of relevant law that would apply. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've, I've got an uncle who lives in, in Durban. And so, oh, yeah. and that's where I'm from, in fact. Yeah, I saw you were from yeah. KwaZulu Natal. Mm -hmm. um, so, probably a Sharks fan if you follow the rugby. <laughs> I, I, not, again, not as closely as I used to, but uh, growing up, certainly a Sharks fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they, they had quite severe uh, restrictions, you know, on different aspects of life in South Africa, didn't they, during, during COVID? Yeah, some quite extraordinary restrictions, actually, initially. Um, so not even be able to leave one's home for the purpose of exercise. Uh, I think there was initially a concern that COVID would interact with some other diseases prevalent in South Africa in ways that were potentially disastrous, like HIV, AIDS and tuberculosis. Um, I, I don't know if the worst case scenarios have been realized, but obviously overall um, there's been a greater impact in South Africa than, than here. And um, you see that especially, I think, in excess deaths in South Africa. Mm, okay. So I thought the the outline for today, we'd probably go sort of in chronological order about this, the things that happened during COVID, starting with the lockdowns and then w working our way through to, to vaccines and that sort of stuff. Um, so one of the things that I think you're going to talk about is, is lockdowns and how the law, what the law says about lockdowns. Sure. So um, obviously lockdowns were very prominent part of the COVID response initially. Uh, we seem for the moment to have moved beyond those, but we might see measures reintroduced at some stage, depending upon how things develop. We can't rule that out. 
And as far as the legal framework for those is concerned, um, th there's a sort of baseline requirement that any kind of lockdown measure has to be lawful, um, meaning there needs to be law in terms of which the measures are imposed. Um, and as in Australia, it's always important to remember we have a federation, so we have state and territory governments and we also have a federal government and lockdown measures can be imposed by both of those tiers of government. If we look to the Commonwealth, um, we have something called the Biosecurity Act and that gives very far-reaching powers to the federal executive to impose lockdown measures. So I suppose another distinction we have to bear in mind, as well as the distinction between state and territory governments and the Commonwealth, is also between the legislature and the executive. Mm. The legislature is the part of government that passes laws, the executive implements them. And typically what you find with this legislation is that in times of emergency, during an emergency declaration, there are emergency powers that are activated under legislation and which can be exercised by the executive. So as far as the Commonwealth is concerned, we have the Biosecurity Act and the declaration of a biosecurity emergency activated certain emergency powers that the federal health minister could exercise. They actually are quite startlingly broad when you look at them. Um, so, for example, just to give you one example, Section 4781 says the federal health minister can give any direction to any person if that's necessary to prevent or control um, infectious disease. And that applies notwithstanding any other law in Australia. So it, 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 that, that issue, that, that um, uh, direction that the health, federal health minister can give would override any Commonwealth law, override any state and territory law too. So that's a very far-reaching power that's given to um, a member of the federal executive in a time of emergency. And we have similar legislation in Western Australia. Um, the key legislation here, we have the Emergency Management Act and we have the Public Health Act. And both of those allow the Western Australian executive to give directions when there's an emergency. Um, that's included the sort of lockdown measures that we've seen. It's also included, um, of course, uh, the border closure, which we're all very familiar with in Western Australia. Now, these periods of emergency are time limited. So just to give you one example, under WA's Emergency Management Act, the emergencies for 14 days, but that's been renewed since the start of the pandemic. So... Yeah, we have the Commonwealth level of government, we have the state and territory level of government, and at both levels what we find is legislation that gives powers to members of the executive branch of government in times of emergency and often very far-reaching powers too. Just to butt in there, do you have an example of who the executive, who the member of executive might be that would have the power to, to grant these orders? Yeah, so if we're looking at um, the Commonwealth, that's the health minister. Um, so that's Greg Hunt, if I've got the name. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, then if we're looking at Western Australia, it's the Minister for Health, current Minister for Health, and the Minister for Emergency Services. They would have the power to ex give those directions in terms of the emergency legislation. Okay. Um, and obviously, we've been through lockdowns, so we know the process about how it happens, at least in Western Australia. Um, I'm trying to think of another time before covid where lockdowns might have been uh, implemented, have they? Well, the interesting thing about lockdowns is they might not previously have been possible because we didn't have the mm. technology that we have now. So even if we were currently in a lockdown, we could still do this podcast because we have this platform. 
And yeah. obviously, during previous pandemics, that kind of um, technology wasn't available. And so there wasn't really an option of working from home that, that at least some mm. of us have had during these lockdown periods. Um, that said, we have seen similar kind of emergency situations in the past. One that's not exactly the same, but is still, I think, noteworthy is during World War II um, and during World War I, very broad emergency powers were concentrated in the hands of the Commonwealth executive mm. um, and allowing the executive then to uh, kind of control large parts of the economy, for example, in a way that wouldn't normally be the case. Now, that's obviously responding to a different kind of threat. And it was also a different level of government here. It's mainly been the state and territory governments that have led responses with the Commonwealth kind of contributing from time to time. Whereas during World War II, it was really a concentration of executive power at the Commonwealth level in a way that um, put unprecedented powers in the hands of the Commonwealth. During the Spanish flu too, there were some border closures. Um, initially, the idea was that um, apparently there'd be a sort of coordinated response. And the moment the, the first infections arrived in Australia, um, Queensland and WA went rogue and closed their borders. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that again, repeating you know, <laughs> years later. Um, but I don't think those closures were um, anywhere near as long as what we've seen recently. And your question was specifically about lockdowns. I think lockdowns in the form that we've experienced them you know, being confined to your home, only leaving for certain specific purposes, they are unprecedented, I think. Um, mm. But I think that's also partly a, a function of the technology that allows us to sort of continue to some extent, notwithstanding those restrictions. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the ideas or um, legal arguments that sort of comes up when people are challenging the lawfulness of lockdowns is the idea of proportionality. Do you just want to give us a bit of background as to what that concept is and how it applies in this instance? Yeah, so proportionality is a very important legal concept that, that applies in all sorts of areas of, of public and constitutional law. So we'll probably talk about it a bit today. Um, the, the essence of proportionality is that when the... Um, legislature or the executive is pursuing some sort of goal, specifically where that restricts human rights. They should be pursuing a legitimate objective, not an illegitimate one, and then the measures implemented shouldn't go further than is required by that objective. So if we're thinking about a pandemic situation, the objective is obviously to prevent the spread of infectious disease, which has adverse health consequences, and then the measures implemented shouldn't go further than is required to achieve that objective. Now, in Australia, we don't actually have, as I've mentioned already, a Federal Bill of Rights. Um, many states and territories don't have human rights legislation either, so in WA we don't. There's no doubt that lockdowns do impose quite significant restrictions on various human rights. We can think about freedom of movement, freedom of association, um, and you know a whole, a whole set of rights. Um, when we apply a human rights framework, we want to see that those lockdown measures are actually justified or proportionate to the objective that's being pursued. Um, and that assessment can change depending on various factors. It can change depending upon how our understanding of the virus develops. It can change upon variants that are in circulation. It can change depending upon vaccines and treatments that are available. But the sort of general principle is this principle of proportionality. However, 
it doesn't always feature that prominently on Australian discussion and in Australian law, given the absence of a human rights framework in much of Australia. Um, so in WA, as I've said already, we don't have human rights legislation um, and we don't have that at a federal level either. In Victoria, there is a charter of human rights and responsibilities. And there, there have been some findings, I suppose, that there have been violations of human rights as a result of lockdown policies. So you may remember there was a contentious decision to lock down some public housing towers in Melbourne. Very short notice, total lockdown. Um, and the Victorian ombudsman um, there uh, found that actually the, the way in which that policy was imposed, specifically the absence of any kind of notice, was a violation of rights under the Victorian Charter. And they uh, recommended that the state government apologise for that decision to the residents of the public housing towers. Um, so far, they haven't apologised, but um, <laughs> that's still an interesting finding mm. that there was a sort of absence of proportionality in this um, this policy that was imposed. Mm. Okay, interesting. So essentially, uh, there's a lot of moving parts with COVID and the COVID response and um you know, how we've dealt with it, you know, from a medical point of view. And so obviously at the start, we didn't have any r really reliable treatments that, that worked, that were effective. And so those goalposts moved over time as, you know, vaccines became available and now we've got oral medications which people can take to reduce their risk. And so I'm assuming if, if the court reached one decision two years ago about this, they might reach a different decision today as to whether lockdowns were lawful or disproportionate. Yeah, I think that's right. I think even if we don't have a human rights framework that we can apply, for example, in Western Australia, it's still worth thinking about the human rights aspects of this and the proportionality of these measures. And uh, I think what you've said is absolutely right, that um, measures that might have been justified at one stage of the pandemic might not be justified at another one. Um, and that can be linked to various factors. As I said, our understanding of the virus the particular variant, um, as well as the um, preventative measures that we might have in place, like vaccines or treatments that are available. Um, um, why don't we have a Bill of Human Rights? <laughs> oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, and it's partly a historic question. Um, yeah, okay. So when the Commonwealth of Australia was created, 1st of January 1901, there had been a series of conventions prior to that, which had drafted the constitution. But those conventions were mainly focused on the sort of federation and tra the trade and financial issues arising out of federation. So right. human rights, constitutional rights weren't really at the forefront of the minds of the framers of the constitution. If we look at it, different constitutions, for example, Germany or South Africa, the German constitution was drafted in the aftermath of World War II, the South African mm. constitution at the end of apartheid. There's right. a different set of issues that were preoccupying the framers of those constitutions. And so they thought it was very important to include human rights standards. Um, but mm, it really okay. wasn't something that was given a great deal of consideration by the framers of the Australian constitution. It, it did arise to some extent because our sort of federal model is inspired by the U.S. Constitution, and, and obviously they have a, a set of rights in the U.S. Constitution. But 
we are also influenced by the British constitution and drafting our constitution. At that time, Britain didn't have anything like a Bill of Rights either. They hmm. acquired one subsequently with the 1998 Human Rights Act, but we've never done so. Um, so federally, we have very few sort of rights guarantees. Uh, there are a few that I said on the constitution, but scattered in the constitution or implied. And then a few states and territories have adopted human rights legislation, although it's fairly weak, really, compared to what you can find in some other jurisdictions. So Victoria, the Australian Capital Territory and Queensland all have Human Rights Act. Um, but, you know, as you can gather from what I've said already, like when the Ombudsman suggested an apology and even that wasn't forthcoming, <laughs> that legislation doesn't necessarily take you very far. So we, we don't um, have a strong human rights framework in Australia. We tend to rely more on sort of public accountability, accountability to parliament, accountability to the electorate. Uh, and I think some of what the pandemic has exposed are some weaknesses in those accountability mechanisms. So, um, you know, one of the ideas is that the executive is accountable to parliament, but really, especially what we've seen in Western Australia is far reaching decisions being made by a fairly small group of people in the executive exercising very wide ranging powers and often on the basis of advice that isn't even made public. Um, so mm. the accountability can be quite limited. Yeah. Yeah, that's been a recent issue in WA where they've been calling for the modelling that supposedly has been driving decision-making about reopening and, and that sort of thing, and it hasn't been forthcoming. So, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and I think that from my perspective, I'm not a health expert, but just as a lawyer interested in accountability, especially accountability for executives, um, it is concerning that health advice often seems to operate as a sort of blank check mm. to the government. So a minister will stand up and say, on the basis of the health advice we've received, we're doing the following. But that health advice isn't made public. It's presumably contestable, too, if it was made public. I mean, yes. presumably are different opinions amongst health experts. So you don't really know if it justifies the measures that are being implemented. That's right. And uh, one of the um, – an interesting development related to that is in Victoria um, – Specific pandemic specific legislation has been introduced, um, the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment um, Act. And it was quite contentious initially, but there are some positive aspects to it, one of which is that the health advice on which the government is relying should be made public. Um, mm. And I see that as quite a simple step in some ways that would at least create greater accountability and transparency. Yeah. And I, I think also. It's the government, the minister in particular's job to make decisions. It's not their job to subjugate that to a to another party. Like they they get the information in front of them and make a decision, and they're responsible for that. So they can't turn around and say, "Well, it was the advice's fault that things went wrong." You know, that they've got to be accountable. Well, I'll, I'll play a bit of a devil's advocate here, but I can uh, I can understand as well why at the time, like right now, maybe they won't give the modelling and things like that out to everyone because it might be insanely difficult modelling that not many people are going to understand and then therefore there's all this misinformation that could be spread. Um, having said that, they should still make everything available to everyone. So <laughs> I can see it but also no. <laughs> yeah. I mean there's enough people out there with the expertise to, to unpack yeah. the modelling that could translate it for broader consumption but yeah look uh, in, in time all these things ca can come out under freedom of information anyway is my understanding so 
yeah absolutely and it probably will be released and then the government will apologize later in like 30 <laughs> years so we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah well so i think that's that's a, a good coverage of, of lockdowns so the other thing which has um, been very contentious over the the last couple of years um, particularly with wa is um, border closures um, between states uh, and the lawfulness around that now there is a particular section of the constitution section 92 that's that's central to this isn't there murray yes so section 92 and i'll just pull up the exact text um so what section 92 says is that uh on the imposition of uniform duties of customs trade commerce and intercourse among the states whether by means of internal carriage or ocean navigation shall be absolutely free so the language is a bit antiquated but it's clearly establishing a type of free trade area within the Commonwealth of Australia. And it's also saying that intercourse or movement between the states should be absolutely free. Um, now, like on the face of it, that would seem to preclude border closures, having absolutely free movement between the states. But what the High Court has said is that uh, you can have limitations on that freedom. Um, the most recent case that we have was brought by the litigious Clive Palmer, who brings a lot of cases in Western Australia. <laughs> um, so we sometimes sort of say in the law school we could teach a whole course just on Clive Palmer and his litigation. <laughs> um, but this was a challenge specifically to Australia's, uh, sorry, Western Australia's closed border. And at the time the challenge was brought, our border was closed to the rest of Australia as, as well as internationally. Um, and what the High Court said in Palmer is you can have restrictions on that freedom, provided that they're proportionate to go back to that concept. Um, mm. And proportionality is actually quite a structured test. You need to have a legitimate aim. And then there are three steps that determine whether the restriction is proportionate or not. You have to ask whether the measures are suitable, necessary, and balanced. Now, I'm not going to go into what each of those steps mean, but it's a fairly structured inquiry. Um, now, when Clive Palmer brought that case, it was, um, I forget the exact date, um, but it was at a much earlier stage in the pandemic. And the High Court um, relied on certain findings from the federal court. And, and one of those was that there was no vaccine, there was no really effective treatment at that stage. And they, affected, um, they accepted that um, even a single case of COVID in Western Australia could have catastrophic consequences. And on that basis, they're willing to uphold the hard border arrangement Western Australia had in place as a proportionate measure. But I think there are you know, two additional things that should be said. And one of them goes back to the point you made earlier, Craig, that you know, as time passes, um, a measure that was proportionate at one point might not be proportionate at another. So you know, when Clive Palmer brought that case initially, there wasn't an effective vaccine. Obviously, we have that now. That changes the assessment of proportionality. There was no community transmission of COVID at that stage in the WA community. We have that now. And uh, obviously, when you have enough of that, a closed border ceases to be have any point, really. Um, and so even though at the time um, the measure was upheld as a proportionate limitation of Section 92, the important point to bear in mind is that the sort of default position should be free movement between the states and these exceptions should be quite carefully justified. Um, so I suspect now if there was another case, um, it would be very hard to justify any kind of hard border. 
Um, the government appears to have accepted that, of course, now that we, we have another opening date. And I did sort of coincidentally hear the CEO of Flight Center on the radio this morning, and he was, they were considering litigation, and I think they would have been advised they had a reasonable chance of success. But I think they're not really considering that now that we have a, a date for the border to open again. Yeah, I heard that interview. I think I think it was the same interview. And he basically mm-hmm. said that if the period of time that it took for the case to get to court was shorter, then they probably would have proceeded with mm-hmm. it. But it was going to take a certain amount of time to go to court. And by that stage, it would be redundant because the borders mm-hmm. were going to be opened, you know, originally yeah. in February and now in March. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So is, that was basically what the Palmer the Clive Palmer case turned on was the fact that there was no other way of managing the um, the pandemic at that stage? Yeah, so it, it, it really turned on this assessment of proportionality and the High Court's acceptance that in those very particular circumstances without a vaccine, without effective treatment, without community transmission, this was a, um, a proportionate restriction on the Western, on movement into Western Australia. Yeah. And did you know if the issue of um, Aboriginal communities came into that conversation at all? Because that's obviously a, a something that was front and centre, you know, when they shut our internal borders within WA originally was to protect the Aboriginal communities who they deemed could be at a heightened risk of, of poor outcomes if this got in, into those communities. So the Palmer case was focused on the state border rather than internal borders within Western Australia. Um and so I don't think that issue was raised in a prominent way. I mean, it may have been made in submissions, but I don't remember any specific reference in the judgment itself to that to that issue. Mm. Okay. And th- so these uh, laws kind of apply to the interstate borders. Mm. Um, are there any within state? Because obviously we've had restrictions of movement within mm. um, certain regions as well. Does the same thing apply or is there like different laws. Okay, so just looking at section 92, what section 92 says is that um, intercourse among the states shall be absolutely free. So the Mm. constitutional guarantee is a free movement between the states, not free movement within the states. Um, So what that means is that it's, it's much easier for a state government to restrict movement within the state as, as, as you pointed out, Craig, with vulnerable Indigenous communities. And they don't have to get over a constitutional hurdle to do that because the, mm. the guarantee of freedom of movement is, is just between the states constitutionally rather than within the state. Um, and we don't have, mm. to go back to what we were discussing earlier, we don't have a sort of general right of freedom of movement in the Australian constitution. Um, now, interestingly, though, um, there was a case in Victoria, Gurner in Victoria, which sought to challenge the Victorian lockdowns measures, which, as we know, were, were quite lengthy and far-reaching, as somehow breaching the implied freedom of political communication. But you can sort of see how that argument wouldn't get very far, because especially with the technology we have now, you can still freely communicate even with a lockdown measure in place. Um, and so that argument wasn't successful. And I think it was also contended in that case that in addition to free political communication, the implied freedoms of movement and association under the Australian constitution, but that's not a proposition the High Court has accepted. Um, so that argument was also unsuccessful. So, yeah, just to go back to the question you asked, Courtney, um, the constitutional hurdles are in limiting freedom of movement between states, but not so much within states. Yeah, Okay. 
Um, so just just quickly on that that Victorian case, um, uh, with the people bringing that case suggesting that they were be, they were being prevented from protesting as a form of communication publicly or something like that. It wasn't um, actually that. That sounds like a more compelling argument than the one that was actually made. <laughs> so um, I think it was a fairly speculative challenge to the to the lockdown um, measures. They weren't trying to protest any particular point, and I think they're trying to sort of um, say that there was a sort of freedom of movement following mm. from the implied freedom of political communication. But but that goes against the grain of high court case law. Yeah. And so really what they were, I think there were some other submissions made, um, but they, they were unsuccessful. Mm. But I think actually, sorry, just, uh, just, to, just to continue with that question, protest and public health measures, that, that, I mean, that's a very interesting area too, um, but that wasn't the specific point that was, was raised by, by the litigant in that case. Have there been any um, successful challenges? To um, lockdowns, to like COVID lockdowns and um, mandates and border closures and all that. That's a really good question, um, and the actual the, the answer I think is not to my knowledge, and it says a lot about how far-reaching these powers are that that Australian governments possess. Um, yeah, okay. You know, we've seen that recently, even with Novak Djokovic in Victoria. Um, you know, the the reason for deporting him the minister said was that he would agitate anti-vax sentiment in Australia. And it kind of sounds a bit flimsy. Um, it does. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does, even though I'm not an anti-vax person at all. Um, but they still deported him and, and the court upheld that deportation. So really, um, if you look at our, the way in which government structured in Australia, um, especially in emergencies, there are these very broad powers that are concentrated in the hands of executive decision makers, and they're very hard to challenge. So um, I, I think it's a good question because it, it, it demonstrates actually that it is quite hard to, at least on legal grounds, challenge um, challenge these types of decisions and these types of policies. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. We've moved through um, lockdowns. We've moved through border closures. They're next on the, in the timeline. Obviously, we started getting effective vaccines on, that became available at some stage. And so some, I don't think, is it, it's not all states that have mandated vaccines for particular people or, or large parts of the workforce, is it? It's just uh, just a few states, is that right? I think there are some federal vaccine mandates that have been decided upon in national cabinet and then implemented by the states, for example, in aged care. Mm-hmm. Then beyond that, it's really been left up to the states and territories to go their own way. Um I'm aware of some measures in Victoria and New South Wales and obviously here in Western Australia, but I can't speak for every every jurisdiction in Australia. Yeah, okay. And so I guess that, you know, once um, WA is probably one of the, the more well-known ones because we've mandated the vaccine for a lot a, a lot of sections of the community, which has resulted... As is hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> and it's resulted in really high levels of vaccination, which is obviously a public policy question rather than a legal one um but yeah what was the legal framework which allowed the wa government to to get away with that 
So, um, probably just to go back to the basic point about, about federalism, two tiers of government, um, and under the um, way in which federalism works in Australia is that the Commonwealth's lawmaking powers are limited in various ways. They have to show the legislation is supported by what's called a head of power in the Constitution, and there's a list of, head of pow heads of power. When you look to the states, they have what are called plenary lawmaking powers. They're very broad lawmaking powers. And the only real constraint upon them is that if there's a valid Commonwealth law, it overrides any state law. Now, the question about the vaccine mandates in Western Australia, um, I don't have them in front of me now, but I assume they form part of the sort of general directions that have been issued under the Public Health Act. Yeah. So in the sort of emergency period, um, it's possible to um, for the executive to issue directions um, to combat the public health emergency, and those directions would extend, in this case, to vaccine mandates. Yeah. And as you say, pretty pretty far-reaching in some instances. Yeah. I've, probably, I've probably skipped ahead a step there. Why, why don't we have a quick discussion about, in the cases where the, the federal government or the Commonwealth government has mandated vaccines for certain people, what are the powers that allowed them to do that? Okay, so um, generally I think it's been in National Cabinet, which is a sort of um, a forum where the Prime Minister can meet with the Premiers and collectively make decisions. Um, where there's been a decision to implement a vaccine mandate um, nationally, I believe it's generally been left up to the different states and territories. If one was to be implemented um, federally, it would presumably be under the Biosecurity Act, which I mentioned earlier. And that's because the Biosecurity Act does give these very broad powers. So Section 4781, the federal health minister can give any direction to any person to um, prevent the spread of infectious disease, um, and that would extend to a vaccine mandate. Now, any legislation, you have to show you have a specific lawmaking power in the Constitution. Which one would you be using for this legislation? There are a few the Commonwealth could rely on. Um, there's a quarantine head of power. It's a bit vague, actually, what that encompasses, but you could probably say maybe it encompasses um, vaccine mandates. Um, there's also something called the external affairs head of power. And what that extends to is that where a treaty has been ratified by the Commonwealth, it can be implemented. And just to give one example, the Commonwealth has ratified the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. That includes a right to health. So they could presumably justify some of these measures under a general right to health that they're implementing in the form of vaccine but the Biosecurity Act and then vaccine mandates. At a state level, the, the, you don't have to jump over that hurdle, right? So um, at a state level, provided there's not a Commonwealth law overriding the state law, the state legislature can act, enact the law, in this case, this emergency legislation, and then provided that the direction falls within the scope of the emergency legislation, then it's valid. So go back to your question earlier, Courtney, very hard to challenge these kinds of um, decisions through the courts in Australia um, yeah. because 
they're broad lawmaking powers. They can then give broad powers to the executive. And it's even harder to do it at a state level where you don't even have the sort of constitutional constraints that the Commonwealth has to contend with. And this is just in kind of an emergency health situation because um, although a lot of people that I talk to don't necessarily believe me, we've had vaccine mandates before um, when we're talking about childcare uh, vaccinations for daycare and all that kind of stuff. Um, So is it kind of a similar pathway to get those mandates in, even though it's not an emergency or or something like that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you say, We've certainly had mandates before, although they've been more far-reaching recently, like, for example, going as a Dan Murphy used to buy a bottle of wine. And yes. recently <laughs> required proof of yeah, got to get jabbed for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now um, I think what the emergency does, it activates lawmaking powers that the minister can exercise very quickly, right? Yeah. So even outside an emergency, it would still be open to the WA government to impl- pass a law saying to go into Dan Murphy's, you need to show you've been vaccinated against <laughs> X, Y, or Z disease. They can still do that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in Australian law that says they can't. But they'd have yeah. to get it through Parliament, which would be contentious, <laughs> right? Um, and so then they've got to persuade people to vote for the, the bill, which then becomes an act. Um, and there's a sort of media interest around that. With the emergency legislation, the minister uh, uh, can just issue the direction and say this is the vaccine mm. mandate. And so... There's not that same process requirement in place. And so um, it's easier and faster to do. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then another question that came up quite early on while vaccines were being developed, actually, was that some people on sort of religious and ethical grounds were objecting to the vaccine and the way it was developed. They thought that embryos or animal parts were being used um, in the development. Now, is there any, are there any protections for people on the grounds of religion or, or some other ethical framework in our constitution? It's an interesting question. Um, historically, with vaccine mandates in Australia, like those that Courtney mentioned, I believe there have been religious exemptions. So, for example, for Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, as far as the current vaccine mandates are concerned, um, I'm not sure that those exemptions are there. Uh, presumably, they might be there. Again, I don't have the directions in front of me. They might be there on health grounds. Whether they're there on religious grounds, I'm not so sure, or conscientious objection grounds. Um, there is a provision of the Constitution which might be sort of what's in the sort of background to this question, Section 116, which guarantees freedom of religion. And that does prohibit legislation which um, burdens the free exercise of religion. And I suppose there is a kind of argument one could make that a vaccine mandate is is a type of burden on the free exercise of religion if one has good faith religious objections. The, The difficulty in bringing that case, I think, would be twofold. The one is that in our federal structure, that restriction applies to Commonwealth law. Um, rather Mm. than state law. And most of our vaccine mandates are state-based. And also the Commonwealth, the High Court has tended to interpret that provision of the Constitution quite narrowly. So even if there was a Commonwealth vaccine mandate and you're seeking to show some kind of religious objection to it, um, it's not guaranteed the High Court would, would, would side with you. But the more 
problematic aspect to that line of argument is simply that this restricts commonwealth as opposed to state law and the state law doesn't have to the states don't have to contend with that issue with respect to these directions okay so just just a hypothetical for you say wa has a, a sweeping uh, mandate for almost everyone to to get a vaccine if they want to continue working in, in the work that they're doing could the could the commonwealth then enact a bit of legislation carving out a religious protection which would then override okay. the state law so that's a, it's a good question for two reasons um the first is the reason it's a good question is that actually the state legislature legislature could enact that law um and provided it fell within the terms of the emergency powers a minister could enact that kind of very far-reaching vaccine mandate too now is it open for the Commonwealth to then step in and say, um, well, actually, we think this is too far-reaching and we want to carve out some exceptions? Uh, if they could um, find a head of power that supported that law, they would be able to do that. And they might be able to look, for example, to go back to the external affairs head of power to some sort of right to freedom of religion and international law and then rely upon that. If the Commonwealth did that, they could override the state law in certain respects. So um, it is often possible for the Commonwealth to step in and use its legislative power to override state law. In fact, um, as some legal commentators have pointed out, it would in fact have been possible for the Commonwealth to legislate for freedom of movement in Australia um, and override the WA state border. Um, but they're not necessarily minded to do that um, for a host of reasons. Some, most of which I think are political and that, especially with a federal election looming, um, wouldn't perhaps be a popular move for the incumbent government at a Commonwealth level to step in and interfere with what are seen as state affairs. So you can see why the Commonwealth has perhaps stepped back a bit um, during these events. But yes, the relevant section of the Constitution is Section 109. If there's inconsistency between Commonwealth and state law, Commonwealth law takes priority. And provided the Commonwealth can point to a head of power that justifies the enactment of the law, they can override state law in certain respects. Mm. It's yeah, it's interesting you, you say that the federal government's sort of retreated quite a bit because their initial reaction with when Clive Palmer brought his lawsuit was to side with him. And I think they were actually going to make an application in support of his challenge to WA, weren't they? Yes. Now, to be fair to the Commonwealth, it's not unusual for the Commonwealth to intervene in high court legislation where they think there's a point of law that they have an interest in. And the Commonwealth's perspective is they have an interest in free movement in Australia. But politically, the sort of optics of it were fairly disastrous for the Liberal government because the WA Labor government could simply say, oh, look, you know, the Liberals are taking the side of Clive Palmer, who's an unpopular figure in Western Australia. Um, and so I think politically it was ill was ill considered. Mm. And I guess a lot of the, at least from what I understand, a lot of the West Australian um, communities have actually quite liked all of the border closures and uh, lockdowns and things like that. So it does seem a bit silly to go against it if you want WA support. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I know that their support has dropped recently, you know, yeah. um, but... Yeah, the hard border has actually been quite a quite a popular policy, um, and it seems to uh, me as a relative newcomer to Western Australia, it seems to have appealed to some of the sort of secessionist tendencies that have historically existed in the state. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there've been times when the you know the WA government has played upon those quite explicitly, saying you know we're becoming a country within a country. Yeah, <laughs> compared to North Korea, several times. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I have seen more recently more of the there's like these stickers that pop up hmm. saying like Western Australia should become its own country. And yeah. over the past like year, more and more of those stickers have been scattered around Perth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the WA actually did hold a referendum. I forget the exact mm. date, which by popular vote they supported becoming West Australia, leaving the Commonwealth. But the Commonwealth simply said that we don't support this, and that was the end of the, the matter. <laughs> yeah, it's quite hard. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> quite hard to secede, I think. I thought we might finish off just by talking about a couple of interesting cases that arose. Um, I think the first one was around the mandates and it involved the New South Wales government around the vaccine mandate, mandates and about what was what the operation of the mandate was. What, what did them making, was it, was it um, coercive or not, I think was kind of the issue. And I think that, that case was Newman and the, and the Minister for Health, right? Let me just have a look. I think Newman was the case about the border closure and citizens so, returning to sorry, Australia. Yeah, Kazam. It was Kazam. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so CASM is a case about, it's a challenge to um, certain vaccine mandates in New South Wales. And I think it really illustrates um, Courtney's question earlier very well about how difficult it is to challenge um, executive decisions under Australian law. Because this was a decision the minister had made under the New South Wales emergency legislation, so the equivalent of our legislation in Western Australia. And in order to successfully challenge those health orders, those vaccine mandates, um, what the plaintiff had to show was that those powers were exercised out, outside the terms of the Act. Okay, So you have a piece of legislation. It gives certain powers to members of the executive branch of governments to do certain things. So you can imagine different contexts. You have a legislation that allows someone in home uh, to issue visas or not issue visas, and they can use their power to issue visas under certain conditions. Here you have this emergency legislation um, relating to pandemic disease, and there are these very broad-reaching powers given to the minister, and the minister used those powers to create a vaccine mandate. So in order to sort of challenge that mandate, you have to show that the powers are ex exercised outside the terms of the Act, and the Act is often framed in these really broad terms. So you, you, the, if you read CASM, um, it's, it's parts of it are fairly technical um, about whether the power was exercised in terms of the enabling legislation. It's a branch of law called administrative law. And you have to look at things like, did the minister take account of irrelevant considerations or you know, exercise the power for an improper purpose? But it's very hard to challenge the decision directly. Um, and so that case was unsuccessful. Um, it was a Supreme Court case and then a Court of Appeal case, and both of those challenges to the vaccine mandates were unsuccessful. Um, and there are a lot of different points that were raised, some more compelling than others. Um, there was a, one argument derived from the Commonwealth Constitution that the court de described as completely untenable. Um, but the, the chief difficulty facing the litigants in that case is they have to show that the decision the vaccine mandate is simply outside the terms of the legislation empowering the minister. 
But when the legislation gives these very broad-reaching powers that I've described to you already, you can see that's a really difficult thing to achieve. Yeah, and and the the mandate doesn't operate to force people to have any procedure, does it? No. Um, even if it did, though, well, yeah, so the, your question, so what these mandates typically say is that um, you if you're going to enter a certain workforce, for example, you have to be vaccinated. That's slightly different to saying um, you have to be vaccinated. If you want to do a certain job, you have to be vaccinated. Yeah. The other way in which mandates have been challenged is on grounds of unfair dismissal. So there's a mm. separate case, um, which was, uh, let me just get the citation for you, Kimber and Sapphire Coast Community Aged Care and this was where someone refused a flu vaccination in the early stages of the pandemic when we didn't have a COVID vaccination and they were working in aged care. And they were directed to get the vaccination if they wanted to return to work and they refused and then they were dismissed and they said it was unfair dismissal. And what the um, Fair Work Commission found there was that, well, the person couldn't perform the job. I think they were a receptionist um, without the entering the premises. And since the vaccine mandate required them to have a vaccine to enter the premises, the dismissal was justified. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we'd see those kind of twin prongs of attack on vaccine mandates. One, the sort of public law argument that they're outside the terms of the, the legislation that gives the power to issue them in the first place. And the second, the sort of unfair dismissal argument. So far, those don't seem to have got very far. Yeah. Okay. And um, Courtney, did you have anything more you wanted to ask on that on that particular topic? No, I don't think so. I I have thoughts about like from the health perspective of like hospitals and things like that because I know that a, a number of uh, people that work hospitals have kind of had this unfair, in quotation marks, uh, dismissal uh, because they haven't got their COVID vaccines. But, I mean, I agree with it. So Yeah, I think it's yeah. justified. No questions. Yeah, yeah. policy grounds. Um, <laughs> yep. So the, the last case, which I think really – does seem to be unprecedented was the one I mentioned before, Newman and the Minister for Health and Aged Care, which we would know as the India travel ban, which I think operated for a couple of weeks, some point, some point last year, because India had really high rate, uh, rates of COVID cases at, at a certain stage of the pandemic. And this effectively banned Australian citizens from returning to Australia if they'd been in India during a, a certain period of time. Did you want to talk us through that one, Murray? Yeah. So I think, as you say, that is quite unprecedented, um, even though it was only a few weeks, I believe, restricting one's own citizens from returning um, is quite extraordinary. And of course, we've also restricted people from leaving Australia during the pandemic. Um, now, if one looks to international law, um, for example, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there is a right for citizens to enter and leave their country of citizenship. Um, but international law, even if Australia has ratified a treaty that includes that right, it doesn't automatically become part of Australian law unless Australia decides to implement it as legislation. So mm -hmm. we can ag agree to be bound by an international treaty, but it doesn't take effect in Australian law. And actually with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's not even a treaty, it's a declaration. But the idea of citizens having a right to enter and leave their countries is, I think, generally recognized as a human right. 
Um, so, for example, if one looks at the South African Constitution, one finds in the Bill of Rights a right there for citizens to enter and leave South Africa. So, Courtney, your question early on about differences between Australia and South Africa, this kind of measure would just be unconstitutional in South Africa and other jurisdictions that have that kind of guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, the relevant legislation here that the minister relied on to prevent citizens from returning to Australia was the Biosecurity Act that I mentioned earlier. And um, that's the provision which says that the health minister may give any direction to any person if satisfied that the direction is necessary to prevent or control, you know, um, human human disease. Um, and even the way in which it's framed, you can see how hard it is to challenge that because you have to show the minister's not satisfied. Um, and that's a subjective kind of test. So I think there were, um, there are some safeguards built into the Biosecurity Act, but they very much turn on this idea of the minister being satisfied. And in Newman, the court, uh, it's one of these sort of double negatives, it wasn't convinced that the minister wasn't satisfied. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, uh, the federal court found that it had not been established that the minister was not satisfied. So you, you can see there the difficulty of challenging um, a decision made by a minister in terms of emergency legislation when it's cast in these very broad terms, because you just, you, all you can really argue is not the merits of the decision itself, but whether it falls outside the terms of the legislation. So I think, I mean, just sort of given, I think we are sort of approaching the end to kind of tie these threads together um, I suppose one of the issues that the pandemic has exposed in Australia is this uh, potential for very far-reaching executive powers to be exercised in ways that are not necessarily accountable and that undermine accountability both to parliament, which the executive is meant to be accountable to, and the public. So I'd hope that going forward, what we can see more of are measures that try to enhance accountability, Mm -hmm. even in emergency situations, like, for example, a general requirement to make health advice public when it's relied on, even though, to go back to Courtney's point, there might be exceptions to that, Um, or perhaps greater accountability to parliament. So again, with the Victorian pandemic legislation, what one of the things that's established is a cross-parliamentary committee um, that provides oversight of executive directions, which we don't have in Western Australia. So as much as Australia, I think, has in some ways done very well through the pandemic, I, I think there are some sort of fractures in our governance framework that have been exposed. And ideally, going forward, we need to think about ways in which we can remedy that to just ensure baseline accountability in emergency situations. Mm. Yeah. And I'm going to make this my last question. I'm not sure about Craig, but uh, all of these kind of laws and mandates and whatever they are have all happened during an emergency situation. So when it's declared that this emergency is over, does everything just revert back? Yeah, so um, the emergency is time limited, but it's been renewed. So um, at a Commonwealth level, uh, I think it's renewed every few months, whereas in WA it's like literally every 14 days. But those directions that have been issued under the emergency legislation would cease to be valid once the emergency ends. Um, but 
you know, if it's felt that there are certain measures that have to remain in place post the emergency, they probably would be implemented through ordinary legislation rather than what we yeah. call delegated legislation issued by a minister. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, probably a good point to end on. Um, but I yeah, really <laughs> appreciate your time today, Murray. I know, I know you're a busy man. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure ho- hopefully people have enjoyed listening to the legal side of the pandemic and, um, you know, how governments have been able to do what they've done. Well, it's been great talking to both of you. Thank you for the invitation to join you on your podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. And that was our conversation with Dr Murray Wesson. I think he has provided some insights into things that I didn't really know about, definitely. Uh, I'm not across my law. Uh, and it was really interesting to kind of figure out how all these rules were actually implemented. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And for, for people who are interested in the law, they'll probably be interested in stuff like policy and public mm, policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to underpin a lot of these biosecurity acts and emergency provisions and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know. and I, I found it really interesting that this is, you know, lockdowns and things are, are something that really is new for everyone, particularly from a health perspective. Yeah. Um, and I'm very curious to see whether with the next pandemic, because I'm sure there's going to be one, um, whether the same thing happens. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they describe it as a once-in-a-hundred-year event because the last one was 1918 or something, I think. Yeah. Last time we had a, 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 the Spanish flu that got mentioned there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they, there's also some suggestion from the science community that this sort of thing might start becoming more frequent. Yeah. Know, just with the way certain sections of the world are living and right. the risks we take. And, and I've that heard sort this one's like our pre-pandemic. That's what I've heard. This, oh, okay. is, this is our tester one. So doomsday's still yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah, doomsday's still coming. Yeah, <laughs> a big one going to happen in the next 30 years. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. And I wonder if we'll all get locked down to our houses. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that cheery note, <laughs> where, where do people get in touch with us, Courtney? Uh, they can email at us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com. And they can also tweet us at health means what. So please talk to us. We'd love to hear from everyone. Um, your thoughts about lockdowns and vaccine mandates. I'd like to get into the nitty gritty with some people about that. That'd be pretty fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come chat to us. Yeah, please do. And uh, anyway, that's all for this week. And we will look forward to bringing you a new episode soon. See you then. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.